my name is Stephen Halavik, and I'm here with Elizabeth Eastman, and she is a visiting scholar with the Benson Center, and I'll let you talk a little bit more about yourself, if you don't mind. Okay, thank you, Steve. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Uh, yes, I am visiting Colorado for the academic year. Uh, I am, as you mentioned, uh, actually I'm the senior scholar in residence at the Benson Center for the Study of Western Civilization, which is housed at the University of Colorado Boulder. And every year they bring in uh, typically a visiting uh, scholar in conservative uh, thought and a senior scholar. And uh, uh, most recently they've had three junior scholars, uh, folks who are just, uh, who have just finished up a PhD and are just embarking on a teaching career and an early research career. And those are all typically one year appointments. Some of them are renewed, uh, but no, we're delighted to be here. Even in spite of um, everything that could be thrown at us has been thrown at us at the university. We've had shutdowns, we've had quarantines, we have daily uh, testing available. We have to submit a daily health report, let me tell you. And then of course the backdrop is that is uh, teaching. Uh, I'm <laughs> delighted. We have to remember why we're at the university. Uh, I am very happy uh, to have the opportunity to teach a semester long class on Abraham Lincoln. And it's called The Age of Lincoln. And it's, uh, in, in some ways, it's the culmination of my studies. It, it's bringing together uh, the two things that interested me most. Uh, one of them is uh, the study of political philosophy. Uh, going back to the Greeks and the Romans and some of their early ideas on governance, and then coupling that with the development of uh, American government and teaching that from a variety of different perspectives. So the melding of those two, um, I guess, uh, forces and two um, areas of interest and inquiry are things that I was able to draw upon to, I think, put together a pretty successful course. I have more than 20 students and uh, we're hanging in there in spite of all the differences. Excellent. And yeah, it's it's awesome to hear about your resiliency in, in you know, teaching. Mm -hmm. The part of the reason why we brought you here today was because you, you know how to speak about the history of America. So if we can, how about we start with, what is it, the congressional well, uh, we, we could talk about America in, in a variety of ways. Uh, one can go all the way back to the colonial era and look at, uh, you know, those um, places that were settled by the early colonists. And more often than not, they were coming to this country uh, seeking religious freedom, seeking economic uh, freedom. But for the most part, it, it became uh, pretty quickly um, uh, uh, encouraged by the British, and I say encouraged, uh, they, they encouraged themselves, I guess, to find means by which to escape some of the oppressions that they were uh, experiencing in Britain. But you also had the presence of the Dutch, you had the presence of the French, you had the presence of the Spanish. But for the most part, uh, we really look um, to British colonial America to look at those institutions that most influenced our modern day uh, practices of governance. Uh, the first date that we really have to look to is the Declaration of Independence, where in 1776, the colonists declared independence from Britain. But just prior to that, we already have examples of uh, uh, practices of self-governance. Uh, I mean, think about the ocean that separated the colonists from the British. 
Uh, that made for some advantages and disadvantages, but certainly one of the advantages that we can look to is, uh, you know, the development of townships, very small groups governing themselves within their own communities, that which is closest to the people uh, is makes one of the best foundations for the practices of self-governance. But very early on, um, you know, as the hostilities began to grow between the colonists and uh, you know, the mother country in Britain, uh, what the colonists chose to do was to expand their practices of self-governance, and they actually began to establish uh, a Continental Congress. And they, the way they communicated was they had a practice of circular letters. They would circulate letters amongst various, uh, you know, prominent members within all of the colonies. And that really is the foundation that our country was ultimately built upon. And it's a practice that we hold dear. Uh, the first Continental Congress was set up in, um, gosh, 1774. And that's when they really, had, you know, in some ways it was the best possible way to address the British because uh, the British had long-standing practices of uh, parliamentary government. So in some ways it raised the stature of these colonists. Good heavens, who are these people who are daring to uh, stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with the British? But no, by establishing the first Continental Congress, it immediately, you know, garnered respect. And it was a body that, again, something that's so so true and so necessary in our practice of government, it wasn't by force. It was, if you recall the opening um, lines of the first Federalist paper, you know, are we gonna have uh, government by reason and choice? And they're already laying the foundations of reason within the first Continental Congress to have a, an orderly process by which to challenge the British. So the, this was accomplished for a couple of months and uh, it, within 1774, when some of the issues were finally resolved, they went back to their own practices uh, and you know, running their lives, they thought they had reached some agreements with the British, but then um, more problems arose. The British were not gonna take this leg down. And so uh, the colonists came back together and established a second Continental Congress and they, uh, in again, in, within that Second Continental Congress, that is the one that had the revolutionary act of declaring independence. It was those members who were participating in the Second Continental Congress who drafted the Declaration of Independence and set this nation on a new footing. So, from you know, from that point of view, we can look at some early historical um, precedents that uh, that we've drawn upon. Some of them have changed pretty radically. You know, I know we're, we're on the eve of a presidential election. There, there were uh, figures who, were, who acted in the capacity as, say for example, more like a chairman, or they actually did have a con Confederation Congress president, but it wasn't necessarily for governing a nation by no means, because they were all individual colonies. But uh, they nonetheless uh, began to establish offices that when we came to the point of uh, true self-governance, they, uh, they could be drawn upon and used as models for fashioning the governments that we subsequently um, embraced and adopted. Excellent. Well, I mean, you, you answered my question with an amazing intro. So we have our country that ended up forming and 1788, um, you know, what, what kind of happened there? 
<laughs> what happened in 1788? Well, let's go back just a little bit. Let me let me fill in just one more blank. Uh, once once we declared independence uh, in 1776, once the nation declared independence, the um, you know we suddenly have this this problem. Uh, there are folks, uh, inhabitants of America, who went to bed as subjects of Great Britain, and they woke up the next day as citizens of a new nation. Okay, boy, that's that's one of the biggest changes that one one can experience in one's lifetime. Uh, one interesting note that that I always share with my students is: yes, we celebrate uh, the Fourth of July in 1776, but believe it or not, uh, the vote was originally going to take place in June of 1776. The reason why it was postponed was because they weren't sure they had the votes. Can you believe that? <laughs> the, the country truly was divided as to whether or not they were going to uh, uh, split from Britain. It was huge. It was absolutely huge. It was, it was a monumental uh, you know, initiative, a break, a new direction. And so they had to secure the votes. Isn't that wonderful? Well, they finally secured them and uh, had the vote later in July and uh, issued uh, the Declaration of Independence that's so important for us still today. And uh, what all of uh, the new states were asked to do was to draft constitutions. Some of them had constitutions, others uh, did not. Others had charters. There are a variety of means by which they were um, governing themselves. So uh, they went along, uh, they, you know, they took the, uh, the lead from the Continental Congress, drafted their constitutions and became truly self-governing bodies. The initial government after 1776 was the, um, uh, uh, a confederation of states. And we all vaguely remember from our you know, history days, the Articles of Confederation. The reason why, again, I always emphasize that to, to, this, to my students is it was, it was a transit, I look at it as a transition to go from a, a group of colonies that were governed by a you know, uh, large nation, Great Britain, uh, that and it allowed a transition for this self-governance to take place within the states, but it quickly became apparent that it was just not sufficient. And so we established the we meaning Americans uh, came back, held a convention, and again not by force, uh, but again through deliberation and thought, they established a constitutional convention. And after several months, they presented the document that was drafted and went to the states and the people to ratify. So there again, we're seeing these themes that have that are, they don't start in uh, 1776, they don't start in 1787, uh, you know, but they go back prior, where people come together as deliberative bodies. So when, uh, now I can finally answer your question. Sorry for, you can tell I love to teach. <laughs> And you can tell I love to think about these things and have a little bit of historical context. But I, what, what we can point to is uh, the three branches of government that were, de that were designed in our Constitution. And this is really significant. And this is one of the places where, you know, the practice of looking at these um, governmental institutions through a little bit of a lens of political philosophy. Well, gosh, where did they, uh, where did these folks uh, get this idea of a separation of powers? Well, you can point to um, practices uh, amongst, you know, prior political philosophers or writings amongst political philosophers who introduced this idea. Because what's the goal of free government? 
while not allowing tyranny to take hold, not allowing despotic practices to take hold. And one of the means by which we can accomplish that in government and well, in a written constitution is to separate the powers. So article one, the legislative branch, article two, the executive branch, article three, the judicial branch. They all have different terms. They all have different means of election. They all have different charges, tasks, and responsibilities to the people. Uh, and today, I think we're focusing primarily on the executive branch, uh, the presidency. You mentioned the uh, year of 1788. Well, what we had uh, was absolutely extraordinary was the election of um, a president, the first president under the new U.S. Constitution. And uh, we know the results of that election because we look to this man as, as really one of uh, the founders of the nation and uh, one who held, uh, held many positions before he finally ascended to the presidency. That was George uh, Washington. But interestingly enough, George Washington was not the only person on the ballot. There were, in fact, many people on the ballot. Uh, I'll just name the top two vote getters, George Washington. He came up with um, 69 electoral college votes, and John Adams came up with 34 uh, electoral college votes. Uh, and so uh, back in the day, for the first three elections in the United States under the new U.S. Constitution, 1788, 1792, and 1796, uh, we had elections where the top vote, cut, vote getter became president and the second top voter became vice president. And so there again, a, a very unusual, um, uh, it, it was unusual, but it was also, um, you know, just a really stunning feat of achievement. I mean, think back to what was going on uh, you know, they've just declared independence. They had to fight a war with Britain. They, they, meaning the Americans, had to fight a war with the British. There was a tremendous economic downturn. You had former colonies who were now uh, self-governing states. Uh, and, you know, at the same time, simultaneous, I think one thing that we have to point out, simultaneous with the 1788 elections, we were not only electing a president, but we were also electing members of Congress. We were also, uh, you know, uh, representatives from the states. We were also electing senators. Uh, and then the charge within the Constitution to uh, the legislative branch is you have to construct a judiciary. Yes, there is a judicial, you know, a separate uh, branch of government, Article 3, gives very broad outlines, but the Congress had to design a judicial system. Now, the states already had uh, various um, mechanisms by which to, you know, uh, secure the rights of the citizens to have a system of justice, but uh, this had to be done at the national level. So when we talk about 1788, we're talking a very busy time. But again, you know, it, you know, cherishing these principles of the participation of the people. Yes, no, not all people. I'll, I'll be the first to admit that uh, it was by no means 100%. Uh, you know, participation by uh, males, females, and people of different races, I'll admit that. But nonetheless, it was a fairly orderly process. And uh, to secure, you know, the, the practices that were outlined in the Constitution. <clears throat> yeah, and the peaceful transition of power was something that um, kind of wasn't heard of before this point, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, that's mm -hmm. right. Uh, one of the things that that um, is always interesting to think about when when we drafted uh, the Constitution and we the the Americans and it was ratified by the people in the different states. Uh, pause for one minute and think about your European history, and think of uh, can you list any country that didn't have a monarchy? <laughs> You'd be hard pressed to. <laughs> and so, it, you know, it, you know, the Declaration of Independence was revolutionary you know, articulating the principle, well, the principle and the ideal that we wanted to strive toward, that all men, that all human beings are created equal. Yes, we're still striving toward that, but we still have the ideal intact. And uh, as well, uh, drafting a constitution that, that it didn't take uh, a uh, war to implement that. It was again, like you say, a peaceful transition so it was a peaceful transition from the Articles of Confederation to the US Constitution, and then to have these elections. And interestingly enough, um, uh, 1788, 1792, we have both George Washington and John Adams serving as president and vice president. 1796 is a very interesting election because we have John Adams uh, ascend to the presidency. Uh, he got uh, jotted down a couple of numbers here. Uh, he got 71 electoral college votes. His vice president, Thomas Jefferson uh, was uh, was at that point the beginnings of uh, uh, parties developing in America. He ended up with 68 electoral college votes, so it was very close. Uh, and you know the development of political parties. You know, if you if you recall again, one of the more famous documents in um, U.S. history is uh, George Washington's farewell address. So what's significant of that? George Washington, after two, uh, I'll say successful, but very difficult, very trying terms, uh, you can just imagine, Laura, he's the, he's, he had the patience of an angel, but also the strength of, of an angel too. <laughs> he was able to, um, uh, uh, you know, serve, be a model for the country, be a model for what he thought an executive should be when, you know, this was simply uh, something that had been drafted, you know, only years before. And yet he was, to, he was to fulfill the office. He was to set a standard. You know, we talk about being presidential. Well, we can, we can talk today about what it means to be presidential, but this is certainly George Washington is one of the ones that who holds, um, you know, one of the flags in, uh, in that, um, you know, description of the office. But when we get to 1796, we're already beginning to see uh, a little bit of fraying. And I mentioned the farewell address. One of the things that George Washington cautioned against was the uh, separation of the nation, be it geographical separations or economic separations. He's very, he's very concerned about um, tearing the fabric of the nation. And he also uh, cautioned against what he called party spirit. Well, it didn't take long before party spirit began to really take its hold in the nation. Now, one can say, of course, it's a big nation. It's, uh, there are a lot of competing economic interests, a lot of dra you know, very different uh, geographical um, outlines. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, George, George Washington could, could see the writing on the wall. He cautioned against it, but 
by the time we get to the election of 1786. And then, uh, you know, we begin to see the fraying. Uh, John Adams was a member of the Federalist Party. Thomas Jefferson was a member of, they, they were, he's referred to it in, in a variety of different ways. Some of them call it Democratic Republicans, some of them call it Jeffersonian Republicans, some of them just call it Republicans, early vestiges of a Republican Party. But by the election of 1800, and that's probably one of the more interesting elections that occurs in the, um, in the um, you know, history of America, we, we have the split. Uh, John Adams is out of the picture. Uh, he came in with 65 electoral college votes, but the, the defining event of the election of 1800 is Thomas Jefferson won 73 votes. Aaron Burr also won 73 votes. And that's something that the Constitution just did not anticipate. Or, you know, <laughs> so, so what happens? Uh, we, we look to the Constitution and we say, how do we resolve this? And we have, um, eventually gets thrown into the House of Representatives, multiple votes. And finally, uh, actually, it's Alexander Hamilton, another one of our founding fathers, who says, stop voting for Burr. Well, he ultimately paid the price for that. <laughs> we know about the duel that happens a little bit later on. But uh, no, we've got, uh, you know, on the one hand, what could have been a constitutional crisis, and it was very close to a constitutional crisis for some, some weeks, uh, was finally resolved again without force, but through a deliberative process. Tense one, but nonetheless a deliberative process uh, to resolve it. Excellent. And then um, let's fast forward a bit to the election of 1860 then and um, talk a little bit about the significance of that. Yeah, 1860. Well, think about what, what's the backdrop. Uh, for quite a while, in the, um, uh, as states were joining the Union, and again, there was an orderly process that, the, that uh, territories followed to join the Union, uh, there was kind of an uneasy um, uh, Practice, <laughs> uneasy probably is not the best word, but there was a practice of allowing um, uh, to make uh, allowing the balance between slave states and free states uh, to join the union, and that really that really began to blow up uh, in the 1840s. Um, think about the Mexican American War, uh, the entrance of Texas, uh, the growth of the nation, and the efforts by the South to want uh, a greater presence of slavery throughout the nation. And so uh, as we get closer to the election of 1860, we have uh, Abraham Lincoln, who had had a prominent place um, in politics in um, the state, in Illinois state politics. He served one term in Congress, but one of the things that Abraham Lincoln absolutely was opposed to was certainly the extension of slavery he wanted to end slavery, but he did not see a constitutional means by which that could be done, certainly not by the office of the president. Um, think about all of the free states uh, up in the north. How did they get rid of slavery? They voted it out, or they added measures within their own constitution so of, of not permitting slavery. So there were, there were um, examples that uh, could be pointed to whereby people living within a state choosing to end the practice of slavery that never took place in the south in the southern states with um abraham lincoln 
having lost his election in 1858 to Stephen Douglas for the um, Illinois uh, Senate, he was drafted as the presidential candidate for the newly formed Republican Party and was elected uh, in 1860. And he, um, again, just a couple of numbers, he got 180 electoral votes and the second, um, his closest rival, uh, got 72. And so uh, he, it was a fairly commanding uh, victory. But, uh, you know, the, the significance of uh, what Lincoln had to face was uh, election took place in November. In December, South Carolina seceded, uh, and Lincoln wasn't inaugurated until March. So even before Lincoln's inauguration, he, um, he had to face uh, secession, which he never recognized as authorized by the Constitution. He always referred to these as the states in rebellion. He saw it as a rebellion, and he always treated the states that way. They were always welcome back, but nonetheless, they were in rebellion, and, and they were committing treasonous acts. Excellent. And then, um, so moving forward then, um, you know, there was, you know, the we kind of tried to rebuild America after, you know, the Civil War, and Civil War, you know, of course happened after, you know, Abraham Lincoln was elected, and um, he managed to keep the um, the nation together. And so, after um, after the eighteen sixty election, the one of note um, that comes to mind is the um, eighteen seventy six election with the Compromise of eighteen seventy seven, or there's another name for it too, I believe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, uh, again, just to fill in a couple of the blanks, uh, 1860, um, Abraham Lincoln was uh, voted um, or was successfully elected to the office of the presidency. And then in 1864, he won his second election, but, uh, you know, within just, just over a month after his inauguration to the um, his second term, he was assassinated. But again, with the constitutional outline, we have the succession of his vice president, Vice President Andrew Johnson. But the country was just was a mess. Uh, the war comes to an end shortly there. Uh, what is it, April uh, 1865? The the South finally surrenders. Uh, but now we have the task of reconstruction. And you know, the yes, we we point to the Constitution that provides the orderly means by which we can you know continue as a nation. Uh, but the, the country was, was absolutely torn apart. Uh, you know, the, the, the South was absolutely devastated. We have more than, you know, 600,000 people dead uh, as a result of this. And, the, the, you know, we have two terms of Grant, Ulysses S. Grant, who ultimately was the general who really won the war for Lincoln, who serves two terms of pre as president. But by the time we get to the election of 1876, I think it's probably fair to say that the wheels were really coming off the bus. You know, the whole uh, reconstruction uh, effort was not going well. And so uh, up until this point in time, you know, the Republicans really were a stronghold. Uh, the Democrats were always split, but the Democrats are finally coming back into power. 1874, uh, they win control of the House. But then by the time we get to the um, 1876 election, here again we have a terrible terrible split in the nation, and Rutherford B. Hayes is the one who um, emerges as president, 
But again, the nation is very much decided. Uh, and what in fact happens is, you know, we, we just, um, the, these splits uh, within the nation become apparent. And so we finally just ultimately have a compromised candidate who comes uh, to the forefront. And, uh, you know, a lot of disputes as to whether or not, you know, was this a free and fair election? Well, it was a fair election. Uh, and it was, it was one where uh, the country survived it, but it wasn't pretty. And at the same time, uh, you know, the, these wounds take time to heal, if you will, uh, because you have these, these splits within the nation. Excellent. And um, so moving forward in time, um, you know, we, we have pretty much, we get to the rise of kind of like the political machines there, right? Yeah, yeah, most definitely. Yeah, uh, go ahead. Well, you know, on the one hand, uh, you know, uh, uh, political parties provide an outlet um, or a means by which people can participate. It's the means by which, uh, you know, I think the practice of putting forth a platform is a very good one for uh, political parties because they can articulate ideas. They can articulate uh, directions that they want to take the country. Uh, but at the same time, it ultimately comes down to um, who has the power. Who is going to get the vote out? Who is going to, uh, are we going to, you know, I keep going back to reason. Are we going to have rational persuasion for uh, getting uh, folks to vote in a particular way? Or are we going to entice them to vote? And so you have the, the rise of, um, you know, machine politics or party machine politics, uh, whereby, uh, well, let's just say that we're not relying solely on reason to persuade folks to uh, vote a particular way. Promises are made, patronage uh, practices, um, you know, happen. I mean, come on. <laughs> we, all, we all know how the game is played. But at the same time, you know, it, 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 it varies part, very much part of the political practice. And, but nonetheless, we still want to keep, uh, you know, some, you know, some practice of, of fair elections. We certainly want to keep the practice of honest elections. We don't want fraud. We certainly don't want any sort of um, abusive practices or people kept from voting. Uh, certainly, honesty within the electoral process—it's necessary. It's necessary if we're going to, you know, maintain um, liberty and if we're going to maintain the practice of self-governance. You don't want coercion to take over. Uh, but no, there are plenty of instances that we can point to, um, you know, in history. It's not just in the 20th century. You can point to it elsewhere. Uh, during other times. And, you know, political parties come and go. Uh, some political parties die away. I can, you know, list a whole slew of them of parties that have just faded into the background. You know, uh, why did the Republican Party uh, rise with Lincoln? It's because the Whig Party that was formed, you know, in response to Andrew Jackson finally j just, just couldn't pull it together with respect to pre presenting a united front opposing slavery. But the Republican Party stepped in. Uh, you know, look at the parties that we have today. You have an anti-Trump faction that's raising money, opposing Trump, endorsing, um, you know, ostensibly these people call themselves Republicans, but they're raising money and endorsing Biden, you know, the Democrat, Democrat nominee. Uh, so it's, it's nothing new, but uh, the, what's, what, what we don't know is how this election is going to turn out. We also don't know when we're going to know the result of the election. 
<laughs> I'd like to say just after election day, but uh, I don't know. The calendar's cleared. Let's put it that way. No, certainly, and um, you know, it's it's not going to be. It's definitely not going to be something that's. Uh, I I don't know. We we don't know how this is going to go, and it's uh, it's yeah. going to be fun to watch. I think. Um, yeah, so. yeah, and you know, what, the, the one thing that I'd encourage uh, folks to do, and you know, there are so many popular histories out there, there are so many very good websites, you know, go back and look at some of these contested elections, because it really is uh, very much part of the fabric of America, and find the means by which they were, they were resolved in different ways. Sometimes the House resolved it, sometimes the courts had to step in, uh, sometimes, uh, you know, there were, um, candidates had to step back. Um, it, we, we have a very rich history when it comes to presidential elections. What is your upcoming, um, your upcoming interview with the Benson Center? Well, it's uh, actually it's part of the uh, Benson Center uh, lecture series. Uh, we've, uh, we're having, we've had two lectures thus far in the fall, even with uh, the shutdown of the university. Shutdown, I should say, the, uh, the, the remote uh, teaching at the university, uh, the Benson Center lecture series is continuing, uh, both in the fall and the spring via Zoom. Uh, if folks want more in, more information, they can go to the Benson Center website, Benson Center at the at uh, University of Colorado Boulder. I have a very provocative title. It's called "From Shadows on the Wall to the Sun: Liberal Education and the Ascent from the Cave." And for those folks who are familiar with political philosophy, they'll know that I'm referring to the image from Plato's Republic, where he talks about those individuals who are trapped in a cave and only see shadows on the wall, but through education, uh, through liberating the mind, they leave the cave and they ascend to the sunlight, which, you know, is a metaphor for knowledge. So... It'll be fun. <laughs> yeah, no, and, um, you know, I just, I loved that title. Uh, you know, the <laughs> allegory of the cave is something that I think guides a lot of people. So um, thank you so much, um, Elizabeth Eastman. Uh, you, you've you completely outdone yourself on this interview, so thank you. I really appreciate uh, it. I, it's a pleasure, and um, I appreciate your efforts in giving me the opportunity. Thank you. Yes, of course.